0: Good morning, Phoenix Bible Church, how are you doing? Good, thanks for braving the heat. This is the time of year we get to laugh about the joke, it, well at least it's a dry heat, because it's suddenly not as dry a heat, um, so it's terrible, but um, yeah, so who am I? If you're relatively new to Phoenix Bible Church, you've never seen my face up here before, Um my name is Zach I'm uh, I kind of co-lead community groups here uh, at Phoenix Bible Church uh, that's my primary responsibility to help out wherever else I can um, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, wrapping up the series this week that we're doing the big our broken people big God series so this is our third summer doing this that's crazy three summers that means we've done it three years guys um, so Uh, This is our third summer doing this series where we kind of go through and take a look at these different characters in Scripture um, and learn from their brokenness to see how good and powerful and sovereign God is. And so this week, uh, we're going to be looking at Daniel. Um, And so to get to Daniel, I want to do a little bit of kind of background. One, it'll kind of tie together some of the other people we've talked about so far in the series, but also really to just jump into this passage into this chapter without any context um, is going to be weird because they're not, Daniel's not in Israel, he's not in the kingdom of Israel, he's in a different place. So um, if you're uh, unfamiliar uh, with this this passage or if you are familiar, because a lot of you probably are as well, I'm hoping today uh, to shed a a different light on it, something maybe a little bit different than what you've learned in Sunday school, this idea of Daniel in the lion's den. So I'm gonna do a brief history of Israel, as brief as I can in my um, teaching mode of uh, being a college Bible professor too. So uh, I'll try to be brief. Uh, If any of my students were here, they would be laughing out loud immediately. But um, while I'm doing that, there is a Bible around you. If you don't have one, if you have an app, uh, Daniel chapter six is where we're gonna eventually end up at. So you can go ahead and flip there now. You'll have plenty of time if you don't know where that is. There's a table of contents in the front of Bibles. Use them. Don't be ashamed. It's wonderful. Um, all right. So before we take a look at our text this week, I do want to provide some context. Um, but that also means, again, I'm doing a review of the history of Israel. So um, we started this this series, or we didn't, I'm sorry, second week um, of the series this year, we started with Jacob. Uh, Jacob eventually became Israel. God changed his name. The story of Jacob is that he... Before he was born, God said that uh, the older will serve the younger. He was born a twin with his brother Esau. Uh, Jacob, through being a schemer, uh, ended up taking the the family blessing, the family inheritance, uh, and in doing that, ended up running from his older brother who was not happy with him about it. Um, Jacob flees. He uh, ends up finding a woman that he would like to marry. uh, And a great plot twist, the father tricks him into marrying the other sister. Um, So Jacob gets stuck even longer to pay his debt to be able to marry the woman that he wants to marry. On his way back, he uh, finally kind of makes peace with Esau. During that journey is when he uh, wrestles with the angel. That is the point where his name gets changed to Israel. So that is where we get the idea of the nation of Israel. When we talk about Israel, it's from Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Um... His second youngest son, Joseph, he uh, didn't nail the whole parenting thing and made it very clear he liked him more than the rest. Um, and then Joseph, being kind of a knucklehead too, uh, and realistically, I'm an only child, so this is probably how I would act anyways, but uh, decided to have, uh, tell all these dreams he's been having to his brothers about how they're going to bow down before him and, and serve him. Um, And those of you who have siblings, I imagine if your youngest sibling came and told you that, you'd probably want to throw him in a hole too. Um, And so that's exactly what his brothers did. They were planning on murdering him. They thought, no, let's not do that. Let's sell him into slavery. Um, That's the better plan. Uh, Apparently that was their merciful plan. So they sell Joseph into slavery and God's sovereignty. Joseph ends up in Egypt where he uh, is favored by God and gets put in a position where he is the right-hand man to Pharaoh. He's basically ruling the country of Egypt, and during that time, a famine happens. Joseph's family comes to Egypt, and through a great series of events is reunited. They settle in Egypt, and they prosper. But then things change in Egypt. 400 years later, we find the nation of Israel now is under slavery by Egypt. They've grown to be numerous and large. Um, Pharaoh's concerned about that. He's actually concerned that they're going to revolt. Uh, through that time, he goes to try to murder all the young uh, male children of the nation of Israel as they are born. God protects a child named Moses, who eventually ends up being called out by God, chosen by God, to actually lead the people of Israel through some miraculous works of God out of Egypt, out of slavery. They then wander through the desert for 40 years because they can't follow directions not directions as in where to go, but can't follow God's directions. It is during this time that we see God make a covenant with his people. So there's a few covenants that we see before in the Old Testament. There's another covenant we see in the, later on in the Old Testament. The idea of a covenant is an agreement primarily in the Bible between God and his people. And so it's a driving force of the Old Testament. We see these different covenants established. It's important that we understand those. The one that he makes with Moses and the people of Israel is at Mount Sinai. It's where we get the Ten Commandments. It's where we um, start to see the the shape of the nation of Israel come together as far as how do they worship God. What What is expected of them? What has God done for them? What will God do for them? We see in that covenant both promises of blessing but also the reality of punishment if the nation of Israel does not obey. We actually see that take place even with Moses, who is not allowed to enter into the promised land where, where God is taking his people to live due to his disobedience. So from Moses, we move on to Joshua. Joshua is the next leader of Israel. He, uh, he leads the uh, conquest of the land of, uh, that God has chosen for Israel. As we see throughout that conquest, though, that it's an incomplete conquest. It's a conquest that never is completely fulfilled And because of that disobedience, again, we see punishment that comes and eventually uh, is fully rolled out and results in Daniel being where he is. We go from Joshua into the period of the judges, which is where Tim was last week, where we just see this cycle over and over and over again of Israel rebels. God brings judgment. The people cry out for help and repentance. God hears them. He raises someone up to help save them. They just do the whole cycle again. They, they, they rebel again. Um, we see in those stories of the judges, God doesn't pick perfect people at all. The stories of the judges are like the most flawed, like messed up crazy stories of the Old Testament. I think that's the, that's the part that like you, you try to, when you're like teaching your kids the judges part, you have to sanitize some of that for the kids because like, what does that mean? Um, so we see in judges, the failures just highlighted over and over again, Israel's inability To obey the covenant. They finally get tired of that. And the people of Israel go to Samuel and say, we want a king. And so Samuel goes to God and God says, it's not a good idea, but okay. And so God gives Israel what they want. A king that they think they they need. A guy named Saul who looked like a king. They thought he was a king, he was a great warrior. And he turns out to be an utter failure to the point where God actually lifts his hand of, of anointing off of him and places it on David, another guy that we're probably familiar with. Uh, if you uh, are semi-familiar with the Bible, a guy named David. David is known as the greatest king of, of Israel. He also happens to be an adulterer and a murderer. From David we see his son Solomon, Follow in the steps of his father, Um, his heart is drawn away from God by marrying multiple wives from pagan nations. At this point, the nation splits, and so we have these two kingdoms. If you uh, have ever heard of Israel and then Judah, and you're confused on what does that mean, what's going on, I thought it was all Israel, this is where it happens. The the nation splits, the northern kingdom is called Israel, the southern kingdom is called Judah, you're going to get a little geography today, too, you're welcome. Um... We get this divided kingdom. In this divided kingdom, we see the rise of the prophets. So that uh, section of the Old Testament kind of after Proverbs uh, that, that is weird a lot of times when we read it. We're like, I don't know what that means. That's the, pro- that's the prophets. Um, through this time, basically the prophets come forward and, again, are just telling the people the same thing they've heard for generations now. You're not obeying the covenant. Judgment's coming. You're not obeying the covenant, judgment's coming. Repent, and you'll be spared. Continue on, you get exactly what God told you is going to happen in the covenant. The people don't repent. Ultimately, the northern kingdom falls to a nation called Assyria in 722 BC. And that entire northern kingdom, that's 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, basically gets displaced. Uh, Assyria's mode of assimilating new countries, uh, new lands they conquered, was to basically pull all the native residents out of that area and displace them somewhere else and take people from other conquered places and put them there. And so now, rather than being residing in the promised land that God has given them, these people have been forcibly removed and spread throughout the empire. The reason I give you the date, you're probably thinking, so what, is it's important that we connect these stories, especially some of these stories we're so familiar with with from Sunday school to history, they're real. They're not our Christian version of fairy tales, substitutes. They're, they're real. It actually happened. So uh, that's the reason I give you dates and nations and things like that. It's important that we remember that. This is not just some hypothetical, moralistic story. So, northern kingdom has been destroyed. It's been taken into ex- exile by Assyria. During that time, Assyria falls from power, a a nation called Babylon rises to power. Uh, about 587, 86 B.C., Babylon finally conquers the southern kingdom, Jerusalem. Um, God seemed to have given them a little bit more time to repent. They didn't learn from their northern kingdom uh, brothers and sisters. Um, Babylon's approach to conquering and dominating nations is a little bit different. They don't take everyone out of the nation. They take the best and brightest. They rip all the leaders out of there put in their own puppet leaders, puppet kings, take all the leaders back to Babylon with the idea of indoctrinating them into Babylonian culture, into Babylonian religion, um, and then using those best and brightest to then be sent out to new regions. So that's what brings us to Daniel. So Daniel is in a section, like I said, that we call the prophets. He's during this time. Daniel, uh, the second half of the book of Daniel is uh, apocalyptic literature, so it's like the book of Revelation, Uh, But the first half is more of a narrative, and that's where we're at today. Daniel is one of those best and brightest that's taken from Egypt. He's brought to Babylon, so that's the setting of the story. David's in Babylon uh, in the first half of this book. Uh, He's brought there with some companions. Um, These are where some of the stories that, if you grew up in Sunday school, you're familiar with these stories: the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Uh, the story of um, the, of Daniel and his companions refusing to eat the food and defile themselves, uh, and in that they actually are uh, blessed by God and shown to be stronger and gain favor within the government. And of course, Daniel and the lions done where we're at today. Um, there's two primary things that we see out of the book of Daniel, this part of Daniel. and it's the two key themes that we see is that God is faithful and that God is sovereign. So we see that God is faithful in the fact that, that may sound weird because they're in exile. The people of God are not in the land that God has given them, but they're actually in exile. But we see that God is actually faithful to those who are in obedience, but he's also faithful to follow through with punishment, with correction that he has promised. God can always be relied on to do what he said he's going to do. And so we see that in the book of Daniel, just in the setting and the events that, that are happening, but also in the lives of Daniel and his companions throughout it. Secondly, we see that God is sovereign. God is all-powerful over all things and all places. Um, he causes the events of history to fulfill his promises and purpose. This is important. Some of you, want to say sovereign, if you're theology nerds, you're either like, oh, great, here we go, uh, Calvinism, or you're like, "Yeah, Calvinism. Um, yes, but we're not going there. Um, The reason it's important to talk about God's sovereignty in the Old Testament is because the people who these books were written to in their original time thought of the spiritual realm as being geographically confined. So a nation like Babylon would recognize, yes, there's a God called Yahweh and he's powerful in Palestine, in Israel. But we have a God here that's powerful here. And so much of the Old Testament where we see these proclamations against other nations or where we see God move outside of Israel, those are statements being made theologically by the author that God is the all-sovereign only God, that these other gods are not gods at all. But it's also a reminder to these people, both in Israel and outside of Israel, that That God ultimately is the one in control and that he's not going to be bound by locations or customs or rituals or all these other uh, kind of uh, systems that they put in place to try to manipulate gods. God is not like the false gods of the other nations, of the pagans. So there's the context. There's the world we're in. We're in this world. We're in a book that talks about God's faithfulness, his sovereignty. God is moving in a country that most of the people of those residents in that area would think he has no power in. He's already moved multiple times. We've seen that happen. And we reach chapter six. And at chapter six, power's actually shifted again. So more political movement is happening. By chapter six, the Babylonian empire has fallen. A group called the Persians have taken over. The Persian ruler at the time actually is the one that ultimately commissions the rebuilding of Jerusalem by Nehemiah. If you remember back to our series in Nehemiah at the beginning, we talked about how Nehemiah approached the ruler and asked to be sent to Jerusalem. He commissioned him to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's, that's happening just after this in the timeline, that, that the Persians have risen to power. Daniel's in Babylon, um, and, and there's a shift happening. So God's already moving. He's already changing power. To a, to a land, to a country that's actually going to end up rebuilding Jerusalem. He's going to restore the people back to Israel. So let's jump into chapter 6. Uh, there should be text behind me. Uh, grab your Bible as we go. I'm just going to go through the whole chapter real quick, kind of explain what's going on, uh, read through it so we, we know the context of it, and then see what we can learn from this text. So, Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was with him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So we see here, doesn't this feel familiar, like if you read the story of Joseph? Here's this foreign guy in a different country, God's moving, he has a spirit with him that, that he's, he's rising in prominence. What's important to notice is it doesn't say, Daniel's amazing and awesome and brilliant and shrewd and did what he thought was best, and that's how he moved up. It was, there was a good spirit in him, God was moving in him. It wasn't Daniel's own skills that brought him to this position of power. But as you can imagine, those who were part of the pagan kingdom seeing this guy who's this dirty monotheist slave moving to such higher ranks, they were jealous. So we see in verse 4. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. He's good at his job. Dots his eyes, crosses his T's isn't prone to being um, dishonest or or sneaky or treacherous in the way he works. So these guys get together and they say, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They go, he's doing everything he's supposed to, but he's not a pagan. Maybe we can get him there. So these men, verse 6, Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So we see here the rest of the leadership doesn't function the way Daniel does. Even the fact that it said all the presidents of the kingdom are in agreement. Well, clearly Daniel's not involved in this because he wouldn't be in agreement. So they come to Darius with a lie. They're trying to set a trap for Daniel. And they do it really good. Like, they, Brown knows, oh, King Darius, live forever. And then they're like, there should be, you know, no one prays to anyone except you. Like, not even our own gods, you for 30 days. The king's like, that sounds good sounds good. I mean, come on. Let's be honest. You would. If you're in that position, you're a pagan king. They're like, no one gets to worship anyone but you. You're like, yeah, that's a good idea. I am pretty awesome. (laughs) Verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Darius is like, yeah, let's do it. Let's put pen to paper, set it in stone. We see in verse 10, Daniel's response. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He doesn't change anything. He continues to pray. Though everything else that Daniel has done has been loyal to the king, has been pro-kingdom, he's reached that limit that he can't make a change for. His response isn't to go to the king and protest. His response is to continue to be faithful in all his his things. And so these, these guys that were plotting against him, they knew this was gonna happen, so they go and find him. These men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plead before his God. Aha, we got him. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the induction, O king, here we go, they're good, buttering them up. Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? king answered the thing stands fast according to the law of the medes and the persians which cannot be revoked okay well first of all darius isn't too bright he should have picked up something's going on here they're like didn't you say this shouldn't he be like why yeah why like if you're a parent and your kid comes to you and goes did no when you said this do you really mean it something's up right like, you're like, yeah, what are you trying to lawyer your way into? Um, so, Darius might think he's pretty awesome, but he's clearly maybe not the brightest guy. So, verse 13, they answered and said, For the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the, right, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. They got him. Ha ha. He said, you're not going to change your mind. You're sticking to it. We found a guy who's not doing it. Verse 14, then the king, when he heard these words, was much depressed, distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, "Know, O king, that, this, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunctions or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. These guys are good lawyers. They're good. Come back like... It's law; you can't do anything about it. Um, the the weird thing is 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 he's the king. He can do he can do something about it. He's the king. He can injunct another ordinance. When they say that it can't be changed, it won't be changed. That's a that's a saving face thing. You're the king of an entire empire. You don't want to come off looking like you can't make up your mind. You don't want to look like you're indecisive. I mean, we admire that in our leadership now. Your decisiveness and direction someone who seems to be changing their mind constantly, we wonder if they can be trusted. Darius is in a political problem now. And he caves. verse 16, he says, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared, Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Do you see here, even there's still that mentality of, this is our kingdom, these are our gods. I know you serve this God that's from a different area. Maybe he can do something here. Maybe he can talk to our gods. They can make a deal. Something can happen. But, but it's like this, like this God that you serve, it's a different God. Not someone I'm actually worried about, but maybe he'll save you. I'm not afraid of him, but might, maybe he's strong enough to save you. And so just for good measure in verse 17, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords so and nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he slept and slept fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. He's really worried about a guy that he decided to execute. Do you see how strong he was feeling about having to save face for himself? He was really worried about this guy. He knew he did the wrong thing, but he couldn't change his mind. As he came near the den to where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? It's a strange thing to say still. He's still acknowledging this God that has power. But he keeps saying that you serve, that he's not willing to serve. 21, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And here's where all of us who have issues with vengeance get excited. And the king commanded, those men who have maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they even reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces." Happy endings. Um, that's the part you skip with your kids, you know. Like that's the part, like in Sunday school, you're like, "Wait, I don't remember that part." It's like, "Oh, Daniel saved." And we leave like, Everyone else gets killed. Um, so the common Sunday school lesson from this chapter is something like, "Be Daniel in a culture that is Antichrist, and God will deliver you." Um, unfortunately, much of the Old Testament has really been turned into moralistic stories of how to behave. Uh, we have turned. The Bible into a way to try to get our kids to behave in Sunday school rather than teaching them the gospel. Um, and I don't say we like us here. When I say we, I general church. I should probably clarify that. Some of you guys are like, that's a weird thing to say. Um, unfortunately, much of the Old Testament has been turned into moralistic stories of how to behave. This is not the point of the Old Testament or the Bible at all. The Bible isn't a moralistic book. Commands are always preceded by an explanation of reality. So we even see that in the New Testament. Because you are this, because God has done this, this is your response. It's never do these things so that God will. Do you see that? Even in the covenants I talk about where there are blessings and curses based on obedience, those covenants always start with, I am your God, here's the things I have done. There's always a rehearsal of all the things that God has done to save them. And because of this, this is... The way you should live. The Old Testament is a story of God's work through a chosen people to ultimately rescue those chosen people. And so, the point of the story is not to be Daniel. And in fact, that's the problem we do with a lot of Old Testament stories. Um, Nerds, theologians call it egotistical eisegesis fancy word. Basically, it means that, uh, well, we have exegesis, which is good. That's we get principles from the text. Eisegesis is we take our principles and make the text fit them. Egotistical, you can figure out. So it's this idea of we put ourselves in the position of the heroes in these books. When we uh, see the story of Moses, we, we try to think, how would we act? How would we have done things as Moses? How would we have responded How do we face our giants like David? How do we uh, remain faithful in a culture that's against us even when we're facing being thrown into a pit of lions? Um, The problem with that is that all those stories are actually meant to point us towards the actual hero of the Bible. That's Jesus. Um, Theology nerds call it their types of Christ. That's a nice way of saying they're foreshadowing. These are people who in some way had some characteristic that points towards what Jesus ultimately did. And so when we talk about this series, this broken people, big God, the idea is these are people who are broken. They can't do what Jesus did, but they all point towards what Jesus did and what he can do and only he can do. So the Old Testament heroes are all stories that highlight humanity's inability to be righteous and our inability to fulfill our end of the covenant with Yahweh. These heroes flawed do point us towards the only true hero of the Bible, Jesus. Daniel's an interesting case because, if you notice, the text doesn't relate uh, some tragic flaw. There's not like some story in Daniel where you're like, everything's going well, and you're like, oh, no, why'd you do that? You know, David, it's, it's Bathsheba. It's like David's like going along, he's great, and then it's like Bathsheba, and you're like, ah. Don't do that. No. Um, Abraham, things are going well. You know, he trusted God and it was credited to him in his righteousness. And then God's like, you're going to have a baby. And he's like, no, I'm not. Oh, no. Um, you know, Moses disobeys. He smacks the rock. These are all these stories where we see this, it's this moment of, of tragedy. Where we're like, oh, so close. We see it in Jacob, his cowardice. He runs. The thing with Daniel that we see is he's broken and he's unable to accomplish what only God can. And we can see that when we compare him with Jesus. So some similarities uh, of Daniel and Jesus. You may have picked up a few of them, like the uh, the stone being rolled over the top of the lion's den and being sealed. That hopefully should um, echo, remind you of the, the Easter story and, and the stone being rolled in front of Jesus' tomb and being sealed. Um, Daniel is faithful to the law in the face of temptation to obey. We see that in uh, chapter 1 of the book of Daniel, that his companions do not defile themselves. Though they would have been in a great position to have great power, to be um, important, they choose not to defile themselves. They choose to uh, hold to the law of Moses. And in that, God does vindicate them. Um, Like Daniel, Jesus... Resists a much stronger temptation. He resists Satan in the desert in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we see stories in the first two chapters of Daniel, of Daniel kind of performing these miraculous uh, uh, interpretations of dreams. The same way we see Jesus performing many miracles that cause many to marvel and wonder. Um, in the passage, primarily today that we're looking at, we see. A strong similarity in Daniel's story and the story of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. So like Daniel, those in a position of power, those in a position of power feeling threatened by Jesus devised a plot against him. They used his own righteousness against him as a point of accusation. We see just like these conspirators here in Daniel 6, the Pharisees twist the legal system to achieve their means. They go before Pilate and they go, He's declaring there's another God besides Caesar, which ironically is what the Pharisees believed too. There wasn't, that Caesar wasn't God, but they used that accusation against Jesus to try to tie Pilate's hands, to force him into doing what they want him to do. Jesus ultimately is found guilty of being faithful to God rather than men, just like Daniel was, and is sentenced to death. So those are some of the similarities we see in Daniel and Jesus. And so the question is probably now is you're like, okay, that's a lot of facts, a lot of information. We're not Daniel. Great. So where do we fit in the story? If we're not Daniel, where do we identify in the story? Well, in both the story of Daniel and the lion's then, and in Jesus' death, we can find our place in the false accusers. If we were truly honest with ourselves, we would see the insecurity and deceit of both the Pharisees and these accusers here and see that in our own heart. It may not come out in the same situation because we're not in the same position of power. We're not in the same era where we can easily have people murdered, but... It can come out in things like office politics or even worse, church politics. We may not actually have someone executed, but we as broken people who are vulnerable to this insecurity and pride are capable of terrible things. We're capable of trying to maneuver things to make ourselves look better and remove people that are threatening to us even if they've done nothing wrong. Often those people that you're trying to maneuver to undercut in office politics, don't even know that you're after them. Or maybe you've been on the other side of it and have seen it and you didn't know someone was coming after you. We're unable to live righteously on our own. We see that throughout all of Scripture. Everyone cannot live righteously. In the story of Joseph, we're the treacherous brothers who are threatened. In Joshua, we're the family that kept a little bit of the treasure to ourselves. In the story of David, to quote Matt Chandler, you're not David. You're the scared, shivering Israelites on the hill going, Oh Lord, he's going to kill us. In all of these stories in the Old Testament, they all point to Jesus. And that means that in the story of Jesus, where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves in all the other characters besides Jesus. Do you see all that parallels? I hope none of you see yourself as Jesus in those stories. That one's the obvious one. But hopefully these other stories, we see ourselves in the proper place as well. In the story of Jesus, we're the religious leaders who think we can earn our righteousness, only the place of burden on ourselves and others we can't hope to lift. We call that legalism. In our particular theological camp, reform theology, uh, we're good at that. We're good at trying to be more reformed than Jesus. Um, we're the crowd demanding the unjust execution of a righteous man in doing so making ourselves guilty of murder. You think, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a Christian. I'm not, I can't be one of those people. Okay, then we're Peter. Who in facing a slight opposition of a teenage girl crumbles and denies Jesus. We're Thomas, who, though presented with trustworthy evidence, we doubt. We're the Roman soldiers and the thief on the cross who mock Jesus as he gives his life for us. Are you depressed yet? There's a really wonderful plot twist in the story of Jesus. There's some similarities and some ways that that Daniel's very different than Jesus. And that's the plot twist that's so great. In the story of Daniel, he's vindicated and his accusers instead face the punishment they deserved. In that story, everyone gets what they deserved. Daniel had done nothing wrong, he's vindicated. The accusers had done evil things and were murdered. The story of Jesus is different. Jesus isn't spared. In fact, Jesus willingly gives up his life. Theologians, commentators, some of them think that the the angel that's in the the lions then is Jesus, a, a pre-incarnate Christ, is what they say. So before he became man, some think that was it was Jesus there protecting Daniel. And now we see him, incarnate Christ, choosing to not protect himself, though he was fully able to do that. Jesus' experience is one of the most horrific ways to die that has ever been conceived by humanity. Um, I'm not going to go into the gory details of crucifixion. If you haven't studied that, do it. The only truly innocent person to have ever lived is executed. That's the ultimate injustice of all of history, that Jesus was murdered. You get that? That's the worst thing that ever happened, but also is the best thing that ever happened. Because Jesus willingly allowed it to happen. The conspirators don't face the judgment they deserve in Jesus' story. The conspirators and Daniel get thrown in the lion's Then They're dead before they hit the ground. Jesus could have chosen to do the same thing. He could have come off of that cross and ended everything. Colossians says he holds everything together by the word of his mouth. He simply had to stop, and it was over. But he endured it. We, the ones who are guilty, the ones who deny him, who doubt him, who conspired against him, if you think, well, I wasn't there back then, scripture clearly shows that when we sin against God, we're as guilty as those who were the ones that actually were there on the day that Jesus was murdered. We don't have to face the punishment we deserve. That's not the only option. there There is a way out because of Jesus. You see, Jesus endured the cross in order to pay the penalty of sin, the sin that we all deserve penalty for. And he did that so that he could give us his righteousness. That's the key part. It's not even that... Our sin gets wiped off. But we have Jesus' righteousness. The only person that ever lived that was truly righteous, that truly could follow the law of God, that is truly innocent, we have his righteousness when we put our faith in Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus' as righteousness. It's not simply that we get covered up or we're like, "Ah, eh, we'll let you in. That's not how it works. It's gone. And you have Jesus' as righteousness. So, what's the application? You're like, all right, you've talked this story. Usually it's be like Daniel. What do I do? What's the note I need to make? What's the thing I need to do this week? What's the application? What's the action step? What do we do? Well, one, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus as a Savior, do that. Repent, believe, trust in Jesus. He's the only salvation. He's the only truly righteous person that gave himself up so that you could gain his righteousness. If that's a decision you haven't made, if that's something that you feel like, I need to do that, like, like this is making sense, this is resonating, you can stop listening to me. You can start just talking to Jesus. He can hear you. There's lots of theological reasons behind that. Just trust me, he can. I'm not going to explain all of it. Talk to him. Confess your sin. Repent. Acknowledge that you have rebelled against him. And then find someone after service. Someone wearing a lanyard, Pastor Tim, me, Catch. um, Find someone, talk to them. We'll talk you through it more than, than that. Number two, if you're a believer, what do we do? It's really simple. We praise Jesus. We worship. That's the only reasonable response to any story in scripture is to worship Jesus because we either see how terrible we are or how good God is in every verse of Scripture. Respond as someone who's condemned to death that's been given a chance to live forever. That's the only application. Do that. Praise Jesus. When we do communion later, Reflect on that. Reflect on the fact that you are remembering that Jesus willingly gave his life, though he had done nothing to deserve it, so that you could have life. When we sing about Jesus, we sing because we are glad that Jesus saved us. We glorify God. It's not to make us feel better. It's to acknowledge who God is. It's to praise God. The great plot twist of the Bible is that the lion willingly became the lamb. So in Daniel, we see the lion as the matter, as the means of execution. Jesus, who had all the rights and all the reason to judge all of us, instead became the sacrifice, became the lamb that was sacrificed. For us, it is because Jesus is God, endured the cross and then defeated death, that we can cry out along with that passage that we read at the beginning of, of the sermon today. It's when Darius says, For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions and has saved you from the power of sin. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of it. The Old Testament, the confusing parts, the hard parts, the parts that we get wrong, it all points to you. It all reminds us of how weak and broken we are and how good and big you are, God. God, we can get so caught up in trying to do the right things, do things because we think that we still need to make something up for you or we still need to to check off the boxes instead of just realizing that, that the commands you give us are just logical responses to what you've done for us. Help us to find joy in that obedience. Help us to find praise in that obedience. Help us to realize everything that we do should be in response to you taking our judgment and placing it on Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you willingly became the sacrifice rather than the executor. And that you prove that by rising again. Thank you that you rule and reign from heaven, God. That you are sovereign now, just like you were in the Old Testament. But it doesn't matter where we're at or what the culture's like. You're sovereign and you can move. And we can trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.